Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I am honored to be speaking with Dr. Ellie Bennett about her doctoral dissertation research, which focused on the Queens of the Arabs in Neo-Assyrian sources. Ellie received her PhD from the University of Helsinki in 2021 and now is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki Center of Excellence, Ancient Near Eastern Empires, where she uses digital humanities methods to investigate masculinities during the Neo-Assyrian period. So hello, Ellie, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, it's really nice to be here and thank you for inviting me. So Your research focused on the Queens of the Arabs, which is a description that was used to cover a group of eight women um, who are each described as such, as a queen of the Arabs in Neo-Assyrian sources, text and inscriptions between about 740 and 640 BCE. But something that you discussed at length in your dissertation is that both parts of this description, both the name queen and the name Arab, are maybe inaccurate or at least are insufficiently nuanced to give us a clear understanding of who these women were, who they ruled over, and the power that they held. So could you talk a bit about that, about maybe both where these misconceptions stem from and then how we can better understand these women instead. Yeah, of course, yeah. So um, my interest in the Queens of the Arabs was um, something that we had discussed before the recording of like reading about ancient Arabs and seeing like a random mention in a footnote about Queens of the Arabs. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Queens of the Arabs, who are they? And when you don't know the ancient language Akkadian, which is what the uh, sources of the Neo-Assyrian period were written in, you 
in English, you just go by Queens of the Arabs and you go, okay, so this makes sense. But when you then start questioning, like, okay, so what exactly does that entail? Suddenly I realized that Queen has like two or three different meanings in English and Arab has lots of meanings <laughs> and lots of different people have different definitions of what Arab means. So I really had to like start from the basics of who exactly am I talking about when I talk about Queens of the Arabs. And then after, you know, learning Akkadian, it turns out that the Akkadian sources are quite clear in terms of one word, but the other word is very much up for debate. So the word for queen, in English, it can mean um, a woman who has power in her own right. My modern equivalent is Queen Elizabeth II of the UK. She is a monarch in her own right. She doesn't rely on any anyone else for her power because she is given power, I think, according to God in you know the British ideology. Um, and then there's another version, which is a queen who's married to a king right. and she gets her power through the marriage. So because of how I grew up, uh, I spent some time in Holland. I think of Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, who is married to uh, King Willem. And that's why she has the title queen. But there's also queen regent where you're the ruler until your son is old enough to attain power. So with those three different meanings, which one is equivalent, what, which one is being used in this translation of Queen of the Arabs? And luckily in Akkadian, they're very, very clear and very specific with queen. They use this term called sharratu, which is the feminine form of the masculine word for king. Now, I'm not getting too deep into this because this isn't the real topic of, mm -hmm. of this podcast. But uh, the word sharum and the idea of kingship is a very has a very cultural specificity in the Near Assyrian texts and the Near Assyrian sources. And the word, the feminine form of this, Sharatu, is never used for any of the Near Assyrian royal women, women who we would consider to be queens and use the word queen to describe. Mm. But the feminine form of king just isn't used for them. They have radically different titles. So and that the only time that they use Sharatu is only for goddesses and these queens of the Arabs. So it became really clear that these queens were specifically female kings or women who were performing the office of kingship as the new Assyrians viewed it. So they were being a title that was that best expressed that in the texts. So that was kind of clear in terms of who I was talking about. So in the dissertation, I use a lot of quotation marks <laughs> and one of them is around and I use them for queen to kind of go, look, I'm using queen in this sense of queen means a woman who has power in the same way as a king, but happens to be a woman. And the other one was with Arab. And I originally thought that Arab was quite clear cut. It was mm -hmm. who the who the Akkadian, no, not the, sorry, who the New Assyrians were describing and who called Aribi, which is a term to describe an ethnic group in the New Assyrian sources. But the problem is that when you use the modern term Arab to describe this group, you come into a huge amount of pitfalls. I mean, even if you just go onto uh, so social media groups like on Facebook that are that are people posting things about ancient Iraq, there are huge arguments about whether Sumerians were Arab, whether Assyrians mm. were Arab. Yeah. And there are huge arguments and discussions because Arab is a very politically loaded term today right but 
Western and quite frankly, white historians in Europe and America don't really recognize that. So I found it quite important to kind of interrogate what we mean by Arab. And it also became really clear very quickly that up until 1982, there wasn't really any interrogation about Arabs and what Arab meant in the near Assyrian mm-hmm. sources. Um, and people just assumed that Arab also meant nomadic and that these two terms were synonymous and interchangeable. And the only real, in my field, in Assyriology, the only first interrogation of this was with Israel Afal's book, um, The Ancient Arabs, in 1982, where this first started to be picked apart. But this idea that nomad does not equal Arab still is not uh, mainstream in discussions about nomads or Arabs in Assyriology, specifically Arabs. There are discussions about like nomadic groups elsewhere in ancient Iraq. Mm-hmm. But, when, but when people start talking about Arabs, they aren't aware necessarily of the evidence that Arabs weren't necessarily entirely nomadic. So that was kind of something that I had to pick apart. And it's why I spent a lot of time discussing it, because a large portion of my dissertation also used archaeological evidence from places like Tema, which is a, an ancient city in Saudi Arabia, which was no, is known by Assyriologists. But in 2006, it was demonstrated that it was a, a fortified city from the second millennium BCE, which hadn't been integrated into many of the discussions of Arabs in Assyriology. So I kind of felt like my dissertation was a little bit of, of an attempt to bridge the gap between Assyriology and the Arabian archaeology mm-hmm. happening that had com- that has quite frankly been like coming on leaps and bounds, even just since when I submitted my dissertation to be examined. <laughs> there have been all kinds of stuff that have been coming out that I'm just sat wait. I've, you see these uh, amazing images of rock inscriptions and reliefs from Saudi Arabia that I'm just that come out on Twitter and I'm sat waiting for them to be published. Dying to get your hands on them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in the Assyrian sources, something I thought was really interesting that you talked about in your dissertation that I had not previously understood from my previous research into this topic as somebody who has no knowledge of Akkadian, were these nuances in how the Arabs are referred to in the original texts. The original words can denote either sort of land of the Arabs or people of the Arabs, the Arab people. And that was something I had not previously understood at all when I just read, Mm. you know, sources in translation. I assumed that all of these Assyrian sources, you know, I saw these names translated as queen of the Arabs. In my mind, that meant that the Assyrians or the Assyrian scribes only saw the Arabs as a people. And Mm. to me, that would seem to go hand in hand with an implication that the Arabs were nomadic, primarily. Mm. Uh, it, made, it sort of made sense to me that if they're talking about the Arabs as a people, maybe not specifically affiliated with a specific land or territory, that that would go along with a mindset of these people are nomadic, right? Mm. Um, so I was interested to find that that's not necessarily the case always. So could you talk a bit more about those distinctions what's the significance of that and then if you know about this how 
common is that in Assyrian mm. sources for a people or a land to kind of have those alternating yeah. like definitions, I guess. So this is kind of where I do a little bit of a crash course in Akkadian, which I'm always happy to do. Perfect. So, <laughs> Akkadian isn't isn't the most ancient language in ancient Iraq. And I know this sound this sounds like a bit of a tangent, but I promise this will make sense. Um, and the scribes who wrote in Akkadian, they took a lot of things from an older language called Sumerian. And one of them is something called logograms. Like we use this technical term to basically mean uh, symbols that are the near Assyrian version of a Sumerian symbol that is like shorthand for a word. And sometimes they are they can use these logograms for an entire word, like a man that we uh, assign the value of man. When a scribe would read that, they would read that as sharu, this word for king. Kind of like text speak, I think is the best way of describing it. Like BRB, okay. we, know that we know to read that as be right back. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that. But these logograms can also be used in something called a determinative. And that horrible word basically means that it's used at the beginning of a word to explain what that word is classified as. So, for example, um, the symbol that we give the value of gish to means that whatever comes afterwards is a kind of wood. And okay. in, the, in the titles of the queens of the Arabs, every single time there were these determinatives in front of the word for Arab. And they were one of two. One was uh, the sign with the value of lu or lu tu, if you want to be really technical. It just means it's lu with an acute accent above the u. Um, and that means people. The other one was kur, K-U-R, which means land. And as soon as I realized that, I, I kind of realized that these titles of the queens of the Arabs that were almost like copy-pasted across all the translations needed to be kind of picked apart a bit more. Because as you said, like when you read it, you kind of assume, okay, these are talking about people and therefore it's probably a nomadic group. But then they're talking about land of the Arabs. And then you look at, there's one particular instance of a queen of the Arabs called Zabibe, and she's in this huge tribute list of other rulers. And it's really clear in this list that they all have these determinatives as well, that there are some places that could also be an ethnicity almost, or they could also be seen as a people. So it's kind of best to translate these as queen of the people, the Arabs, or queen of the land of the Arabs, because often they, these Arab, the word Arab in the Akkadian text also has this suffix, so something that's smacked on the end of the word that is specifically denoting an ethnicity, even if it has kur at the beginning. So it's still talking about a land of the Arabs, which means that there's some kind of territory with Arabs, which indicates that there's some kind of sedentary population in terms of right. implications, but they're still seen as an ethnicity. And you can see this in other things as well. Like a, there's another text that describes, uh, I think the best English translation of the Timaeans, which is the people who are from Taima, the city, um, the one I mentioned before that's from uh, the second millennium BCE. And the same with 
Sabaeans as well, which is a population from the very south of Arabia. The interesting thing that I found was that throughout the Neo-Assyrian texts, they fluctuate. There's no real consensus of which one is correct and which one is the best one to use. And I'm hoping I have enough time in you know, this academic life that we all have to investigate this further. And I'm hoping that, that the digital technologies that we have at uh, the University of Helsinki might be able to help that because there's a vast number of texts of people who have uh, these determinatives in front of the place where they're from. Some people, their entire title is such and such the Aramean or something or such and such the Elamites, that's their entire title. And it's read as the ruler of the Elamites. Um, And these will have these determinatives. And I'm hoping that maybe these digital methods, which are very, very new in my field, might be able to help do some proper statistical analysis on this pretty quickly over the, what was the number I was using? I've got a a text corpus of 6,000 texts. (laughs) So going through those one by one for every single ruler, is will be very very arduous and I know that that has been quite standard in Assyriology but with these digital techniques I'm, I feel like I really need to like do a plug here <laughs> these digital techniques at uh, the Center of Excellence Ancient Near Eastern Empires or Arne as I call it will be really really helpful in these kinds of discussions and this, these kinds of questions but it's just developing the techniques for specific research questions at the moment Right. So getting a bit further into Arabia in this period, I mean, the other effect of this term, Queen of the Arabs, as you say, is that it flattens all of the population groups that lived in the Arabian Peninsula in this period into one homogenous mass. And that's something that, as you wrote about, is found not only in sort of modern scholarship, but also in the Assyrian sources themselves, Mm -hmm. where they perhaps did not distinguish between or even understand that there were differences between Arab populations. Mm -hmm. And the example of this that I found really interesting in your dissertation was that it's assumed that Zabibe and Shamsi, if I got that correct, that Shamsi was Zabibe's successor. And that's how I had seen it written about. And that's how the Assyrian sources seem to portray their relationship. But as you point out, there's no evidence for that. Actually, they could have been and likely were rulers of completely different populations. So could you talk a little bit more about what those different populations were? I know we know, unfortunately, <laughs> way too little about them. But sort of what were yeah. the different groups, settlements in Arabia in this period? What do we know about them? How did they interact with each other? How did they interact with the Assyrian Empire? So the quest- the answer to this is going to be really disappointing in that I can't tell you much. <laughs> because the problem, like you outlined, is that when you're talking about these about Arabs in the Near Assyrian sources, you are dealing with two layers of interpretation, right? You're dealing with the first layer, which is the Near Assyrians who are encountering this group who are right on the very edge of this territory that they control. 
So they don't really interact with them very well, especially scribes who are in the court. They won't have much interaction with, with the Arabs themselves. So their knowledge of the culture will be quite limited in comparison to, say, Babylonian culture, which they have a lot of interaction with. And they know exactly how to interact and in some ways manipulate Babylonian culture to their own ends. But Arabs are just on the very, very end. They don't really know much about them. So you've got this one layer where they're just kind of like, there are Arabs. They are ruled by female rulers. They also have male rulers. That's kind of it. <laughs> and then you've got this other layer on top of it, like you said, which is modern scholars who take what the texts have written. And they seem to have, through a mixture of, and by modern, I mean scholars from the early 20th century, sadly, up until fairly recently. And this is to varying degrees. Um, so the earlier ones, this will be very, very bad. But the later ones is just kind of very lighter shades of grey. But there's still this influence of both Orientalism as well as uh, patriarchal attitudes towards women in the Middle East. So in comparison to other, and this is where I'm going to be quite, I don't say radical, but quite harsh about my own field. Um, in comparison to other fields of history, gender studies is still relatively new. And I do mean relatively. It's not like it was sprung out of the ground yesterday, but it's relatively new in the Syriology, specifically for the near Assyrian period. And there are still instances where when you say I'm interested in gender, I had the response once from a senior scholar saying, you have to be careful when talking about, and you have to be careful not to say something banal, like they lived in a patriarchal society. And that's kind of, that's kind of the standard view of the majority of right. Field, which is very behind other other fields, and there are various reasons for that that I won't get into. But because of that, there's still a little bit of a hangover of gender tropes, and there's still a bit of a hangover in terms of Orientalist attitudes towards Middle Eastern women, which has meant that when you when scholars in the past have come across prominent women in sources, they kind of attribute more than what the sources say. <laughs> So seeing a series of women who appear to be at different points in time, they don't seem to be operating at the same period as each other or in the same time as each other has meant that people have gone, oh, it must be like one is the mother of another and she is the mother of such and such and she is the mother of such and such when there's no evidence for that. And the Neo-Syrian texts, they are clear when they say this foreign ruler was the son of this foreign ruler. So it's not as if they weren't cognizant that people could have these lineages of foreign kings. But this is also in a world where we don't know how kingship was passed on in the, in the near Assyrian court. We don't know how that worked. We don't know if it was passed from the king to the oldest heir or if it was passed to someone um, someone else like we know that there are instances mm. where it wasn't the eldest son who was selected to be king but we don't know why that process happened or how that process happened interesting so, I didn't know that yeah so in this world where we don't even know how the how the succession worked in the neo-assyrian court mm. I don't see how we can then impose this like matrilineal succession to these women when there's no evidence to support it there are, interestingly, though, there are uh, populations in the Arabian Peninsula where there is matrilineal succession. Um, mm. There's an amazing gravestone in uh, on the other end of the peninsula, which I think is from the 
third or second century BC, it might be AD. Basically, as soon as it hits like the fifth century, my timeline gets completely out of whack. But it's much later than the sources I discuss. And it does go through like from great grandmother through to the person who was buried, all of these women who are important. And in that culture, yeah, in that culture, matrilineal succession was important and was mm. the way it went forward. We just don't know if that's the case with these Arabs, because, again, the text, they literally say, here is a queen of the Arabs. This thing happened. I took this amount of stuff from them, <laughs> which is fairly standard in these near Assyrian texts. They're quite sparse in terms of details, like like documentations about battles. They tend to go, there was this person. I defeated them in a battle at such and such. And then a long itemized list of all the things they took and how many people they killed. There's barely any information about how the battle took place. <laughs> sometimes you have to really like do a lot of scholarly work just to figure out the chronology because sometimes they're not organized according to time. Sometimes they're organized according to geographical location. So it's all very, there's a lot of detective work just figuring out a chronology for these women. And then you have other things that weren't necessarily taken into account, like the specific locations of where these texts were. There's one Neo-Syrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III. He is famous for reforming a whole bunch of bureaucratic and military aspects of the Neo-Syrian empire, and basically was the starting point of the heyday of the Neo-Syrian empire, the late Assyrian empire. Um, and he was in contact with two queens of the Arabs. And he made sure that, well, at the very least, he commissioned uh, these palace reliefs, which are huge slabs of rock that are carved with intricate images of battles, of religious scenes, of all kinds of stuff, of tribute, and some amazing artwork that were then put on the walls of his palace. And on these palace reliefs, there is a strip of Akkadian which were what we call his royal inscriptions. And they detailed all the events of his reign. And royal inscriptions have their own foibles, their own weirdness that's specific to that genre. But it was really interesting that there were two versions of this royal inscription. And in one version, Zabibe was present, but not Samsi. And in the other version, Samsi was present, but not Zabibe, which is really interesting and indicates something weird going on in terms of why they why one was selected over the other for these different uh, bits of the palace. So you can't even say that in the texts they appeared together because they didn't. They were in different series. So you can't even say that they were related to each other in any way, really, other than they were both queens of the Arabs. One appeared after the other, and that's about it. But modern scholars have done all kinds of crazy stuff with these queens <laughs> that I just don't understand. <laughs> I think a particular favourite is another queen of the Arabs who, interestingly, isn't given that title, but she is a queen of the Arabs. She's imposed as ruler of all the Arabs by a later Neo-Syrian king called Isahadon. Um, and she's been described as daughter of a different queen of the Arabs and as a priestess as someone who was captured in her youth. And none of those are evident in the text. The only information we have about her is that she was raised in Isahadon's father's palace. So she was raised in a royal palace and that she was then 
imposed as ruler of all the Arabs by this Assyrian king. That is it. <laughs> so to add anything else, I think really does a disservice to the women in history. Like you do have to give voices to these women. And I think giving like adding what amounts to almost a fiction or assumptions, I think is a better word of saying that based on ideas of how you think Middle Eastern women should operate does them a disservice. I can ramble about this kind of stuff and have a bit of a rant about this. <laughs> no, I like that you said that you wouldn't be able to answer that question and then gave a yeah. perfect, very detailed answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that was the second part of your question as well. I'm sorry, I forgot about that entirely. There are some places that we do know in terms of um, archaeological remains in the Northwest Arabian Peninsula, but they're very, very limited because in the Northwest Arabian Peninsula, the majority of the evidence is graffiti art, which is notoriously horrendous to date. <laughs> it's really difficult to date, but there are some really interesting bits. My favorite is an amazing uh, piece of graffiti that is either Assyrian or Persian in style, which is very weird and it's of a cavalryman and it's very clearly not Arabian. And it's someone who's clearly seen a relief from one of these Assyrian or Persian outposts and has decided to copy it on a rock. It's amazing, it's fantastic. But mm. the majority of these graffiti- Yeah, the majority of these graffiti are people's names right. in uh, the local dialect of which there were many. <laughs> um, and that's kind of the only way that we can try and date them. But I'm not I'm not a specialist in those languages, so I have to rely on people who have spent lifetimes in decoding these. Um, I can heartily recommend the work of Michael McDonald, who wrote an amazing chapter of a handbook of Northwest Arabian um, languages. If anyone is interested in that, um, to learn more. But there are so many different dialects from the first millennium BCE of Arabian languages that is just amazing. But there is also the excavated city of Tema, and I feel safe in calling it a city. <laughs> it had two sets of, of fortification walls. The first one, like I said, dates from the second millennium BC, and the second one is from, I think, uh, the seventh century BC. And it's got everything you would expect a city to have. And I use that as a template for how we can imagine another city that is explicitly called um, a fortified city in the Akkadian text called Adumatu, which actually features more prominently than Tema in the near Assyrian sources, but hasn't been, to my knowledge, hasn't been excavated yet. I read an amazing excavation report where they tried to do an excavation in the old town of modern Dumatal Jundal, which is where we assume Adumatu was, where um, I think it was in the 80s, where they set out an area and they thought that it was going to be big enough. But then as soon as they hit the Nabataean or in Western dating systems, the Roman bit, they stopped because the hole had gotten so small from the successive bits of architecture from the different periods of this old town settlement that they mm. physically couldn't dig any further. Wow. <laughs> so there's clearly plenty to excavate. Mm -hmm. There's clearly plenty of stuff to find. And I'm just, hoping I come across an excavation report someday soon that can either prove me right or prove me wrong. <laughs> I'd love confirmation about this site and I'd love to know more about it because it 
we can only go by what the texts say. And the texts say it was a fortified city, which we can assume meant that there was a sedentary population and there was some kind of fortification wall that meant that there was some kind of danger and there was a complex enough society to need a wall and that we can assume that it was on one of these famous trade routes that went that traversed across the Arabian Peninsula, but a lot of that is still kind of iffy in terms of the preciseness of that. And I think that's just because we're never going to be able to identify ancient trade routes that are based on sand <laughs> or on, and they have to navigate sand dunes that change like between months. Right. I don't think we're ever going to really properly um, reconstruct those. But there are tantalizing bits <laughs> of archaeological evidence for populations in the Northwest Arabia, but the precise different nature of them is extremely difficult to differentiate. Mm -hmm. But we do know more about different populations in different parts of Arabia. And um, I hope you don't mind me going on a bit of a diversion, but Please. Uh, my best example is in Eastern Arabia. So uh, when when you look at the Arabian Peninsula, you kind of have to uh, take the compass points and tilt them about 45 degrees. So um, when I say Eastern Arabia, I mean the Persian Gulf, where the Emirati states are, where Qatar is, where Bahrain is. That's Eastern Arabia. And there were a series of cities along that coastline that went to war against the new Assyrians. But there's an, there's an account by a Syrian king, Isahadon, and uh, he goes to great lengths to explain how horrible this particular journey was to Eastern Arabia. It was awful. There were, he describes a, a land covered in ants, snakes, scorpions, and stones that are just horrible and awful to traverse, especially when you have an army that's full of chariots and not built for this terrain, and neither are the horses that are in this army, they're not built for this terrain and there's no water and it's awful. And then he gets to, and he takes a very, very long time to explain how awful this terrain is and how long he has to traverse it. And then he reaches this coalition of rulers and then in typical Neo-Assyrian royal inscription style goes, and then I defeated them and this is what I took from them and then describes the next great campaign he went on. But in this list of the coalition of rulers, it's really interesting, I think, because he lists eight kings and he says a total of eight kings I defeated. But in this eight kings are two female rulers. So there are six male rulers and two female rulers, and the total is still eight kings. Now, there is a, a grammatical thing where in Akkadian, if you have a group of people and there's one man in it then that group becomes a masculine plural which is seen in a lot of other languages like i think french is the same but that still means these women are categorized in the same way as these other men so these women are still seen as kings in the same way that these other rulers are kings and what i find really interesting is that uh, I don't think it made it into my dissertation, but I've written an article about it that's currently under review. What's really interesting is that the scribes use this, what I described as the logograms, the text speak. Uh, they use this text speak logogram for the titles of the male kings. So they describe the male kings as man, which the scribes would then read as sharu, 
But then when it came to the queens, they explicitly spelled it out in Akkadian. So they used the long form version of it to really be very clear, like these are female kings. We do not want you to mix these up with the kings. These are definitely women. I which I find really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that the scribes really wanted to make sure that that part of their identity was made clear when the way they're treated in the royal inscriptions is so similar to other kings. But it really shows how, um, first of all, there were cities that were present during the Neo-Assyrian period in Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula, and the Neo-Assyrians were aware that these were cities. These rulers were called king of the city of. Even these female rulers were queens of the city of, not queens of the Arabs, but queens of the city of these two cities. But also what then was really fascinating was that means that the Neo-Assyrians were also aware that these two women fought side by side and that female rulers in the Arabian Peninsula could operate at the same time, which I found really interesting as well. And even though it's a different population, it does start to dispel this idea that queens who appear successively in texts have to be related to each other as a bit of a hint and I use that as a little bit of a comparison as well there's a lot of comparative work of if this is the case in this region of the Arabian Peninsula then why can't this be the case in the northwest of the peninsula but due to different levels of knowledge of the Assyrian scribes it's a lot of uh, assumptions that have been made that have to be questioned in order to say that Arabs in the northwestern Arabian Peninsula are all the same and I feel like my dissertation was the place to kind of raise these questions and ask, why is that the assumption? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you mentioned how the queens of the Arabs are depicted in Assyrian art. Uh, it's a little bit hard to just talk about <laughs> artwork without being able to see it, um, but I can yeah. post images of some of the reliefs that you talked about on my Twitter, for example. But definitely one of the most interesting things, to me at least, about these women is how they're depicted in artwork, in Neo-Assyrian artwork, these reliefs that you mentioned. Could you sort of try to describe them a little bit, uh, but maybe but talk more about kind of their significance and what they can tell us about how, how the Assyrians viewed these women and wanted other people to view them? Yeah. So the Neo-Assyrian palace reliefs are these slabs that I was talking about earlier, these stone slabs that were carved into, and they are 
amazing. Originally, they would have been painted as well, so they would have had very vivid colour. And um, if you can imagine a palace that we don't know what the window situation was like, so just to be safe, imagine a dark room that only has flickering lights and very colourful walls, many of which depict horrendous acts happening. <laughs> when you do, when you study the Near Assyrian period, you get very used to discussing beheadings, impalements. People, people being flayed alive. You get very used to talking about these things. And the Near Assyrians have a very horrible reputation because of these reliefs. But if you can imagine being, say, at a foreign emissary and walking around a, a Near Assyrian palace and you see flashes from flickerings of candlelight of horrendous acts that have happened to previous foreigners in vivid colour, and then writing in a script that you're not are probably familiar with, but in gold or blue or white, I think are the different colors that they could have been painted in, written across them. It's a very imposing environment and also terrifying. And it gives you a very huge impression of like, oh, this could happen to me if I mess up in front of the king. Um, and even just walking around, you could still get that impression as well. There's a lot of debate about the intention behind these reliefs, who the audience was, and a lot of other stuff. But I think the experience is also really important to discuss with these things. So we're not just looking at a slab that is beige and flat, which is what these images, what the images from museums tend to give the impression of. These are 3D objects that would be experienced as a 3D experience with each other, alongside furniture, people, lights, all of this other stuff, and the architecture as well. But that doesn't mean that these specific messages within them didn't have a purpose, and it's just decoding that purpose. And that was kind of the kind of the real codex to unlock. I'm mixing my metaphors here. <laughs> that was the thing I had to really unlock to understand the depictions of the Queens of the Arabs. There are only three palace reliefs that where the subject is Arab women, or at least are directly related to the Queens of the Arabs. Two of them, I believe, depict the Queen Samsi, and I'll just very quickly talk about those because one of them I find is a tragic, tragic comedy of the colonial experience of these images. That one is the one that would be extremely fascinating and I wish it still existed, but is currently lost. The only way we know that this relief existed is that the excavator sketched it and those sketches have been published since. But what happened is that that was part of a a group of palace reliefs that were hastily put onto a barge to cross, I think it was the Euphrates, to get them to the British Museum faster than any other excavator. And sadly, the barge sank. So there is a huge consignment of Iraqi history made of a soft stone that is just destroyed now because they are at the bottom of a riverbank since the late 19th century. And there is no way that we can get that history back along with other reliefs that were on that barge. Um, so we have to go by this sketch that an excavator did of this relief. But if he's correct, and if his interpretation of this relief is correct, then 
is really fascinating because it depicts a woman on top of a dromedary running away from battle. And it would be the only relief that explicitly puts a woman on the battlefield, granted running away from it, but she's still surrounded by dead bodies. And there are a few clues in terms of the people who are dead around her and the fact that she's on top of a dromedary camel. And that's kind of code for this is an Arab that indicates to me that I believe that is a queen. And I believe that is some sea queen of the Arabs because it was a relief in the um, palace of Tiglath Pileser the third who describes her defeat. Um, and that is also in conjunction with another palace relief, which thankfully has survived. And I've seen it several times. It's actually quite prominently displayed in the British Museum. If anyone is lucky to go overlook the uh, issues of the British Museum, you can go in for free and just have a look at it and then leave if you are that, that way inclined. But it is of a woman who is bringing dromedaries and a flask of something towards the king, the Assyrian king, Tiglath Pileser III. And again, all evidence points to this being Queen Samsi, of her bringing these dromedaries forward. And I use the argument of the way that Assyrian artists depict foreign emissaries and foreign dignitaries. It's the posture is very similar to this woman. And she's also using a posture that is also seen in a couple of scenes of mourning Assyrian women. So it's an interesting amalgamation of certain things in a in the artist's repertoire to use in these palace reliefs. It's kind of like if you look through a tattoo book and you want to want that one spliced with that one, please. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of that same thing of, okay, we know how to depict a woman and we know how to depict a foreign dignitary. Let's splice the two together and we have this image. And those don't really tell us much other than Tiglath Place III commissioned a relief or commissioned two reliefs to depict uh, a queen of the Arabs submitting to him. There's not really much more you can say about that because she isn't, interestingly, and the same with the royal inscriptions, she's not discussed in a way that's different from male foreign rulers. So you can't say much other than her gender didn't get in the way of her treatment as a king or as a queen, if you really want to use that term. But the third relief is so much more fascinating and it's so much more interesting because this is what I call the dead, dying and tortured Arab women relief. And it is unparalleled in Assyrian art. Um, even though I said that we're used to discussing beheadings and impalements and playing alive in Assyrian artwork, these are all committed against men. When we talk about violence against women in these artworks, generally the violence is deportations. It's more of a trauma it's more of a traumatic event and a psychological trauma rather than a physical trauma. But this one palace relief depicts the raiding of an Arab camp that is entirely populated by women. And it shows in three registers, so in three lines, them being 
killed and tortured, and then there's a line of just dead Arab women. None of these are seen in any of the other Assyrian palace reliefs. It's completely unique. And the only way to explain it is looking at the overall context of the relief. So the it was um, commissioned by someone who is often called the last great king of Assyria. And in fact, it was amazing when I went to the Ashurbanipal exhibit at the British Museum because it was out on display and I had a complete nerd out and told everyone who was near me about why it was so cool. <laughs> I'm insufferable in the British Museum. But Ashurbanipal was the last great king of Assyria. He is famous for uh, being potentially literate, which was quite unusual for a neo-Assyrian king, um, but also oversaw the Assyrian empire at its largest extent. So under Ashurbanipal, it stretched from Egypt to Iran and from Turkey through to Arabia. It was enormous for its time. Like prior to the Persian empire, it was the largest empire I think the world had seen, I think. That's maybe an asterisk as someone who only studies the Middle Eastern history. And <laughs> if someone who studies African history can tell me otherwise, I'd be fascinated to hear more or any other history that I'm not aware of. So this territory that he controlled was enormous. And we know a great deal from his reign. There's a huge amount of documents that have been preserved, as well as royal inscriptions and pieces of architecture and all kinds of archeological evidence have been preserved from this period. Um, so we know that he undertook two campaigns against the Arabs and he commissioned a room to be full of reliefs that were dedicated to these two campaigns. The events are a little bit muddled. So he, uh, in the first campaign, this is where my own chronology gets a little muddled, in the first campaign, he comes across a woman called Adia, who, who he describes as the queen of the Arabs, and he says explicitly that he defeated. In other texts, there's more information added, and she's the only woman who we know anything about her marital status, and that she was married to another king of the Arabs. Um, and then in the second campaign, more stuff happened. But in this room, this interesting palace relief of dead Arab women seems to be in the narrative of the second one, but it doesn't really seem, everything seems to be a little bit odd. <laughs> but I think that's also largely to do with the layout of the room. It appears to me that they wanted this scene to be at an imposing position in the room. So it's, the relief is directly next to the entranceway into a courtroom. So this room is on one side, there's the uh, the royal throne room and the other side is a court. And as you left the throne room, I hope I'm getting this right, as you left the throne room, you went through this room and before you left into the other room, the last thing you would see on your right-hand side would be this relief, which again, with these flickering lights and everything would be an incredibly imposing and terrifying thing to see, especially when painted and potentially gilded and all kinds of stuff. And something that really makes this, that makes this already unique relief or even more strange is it's the only depiction of, and I apologize for how horrible this is. It is the only depiction of a woman 
who is forcibly having her fetus removed. So she was clearly a pregnant woman and she's being held back by an Assyrian soldier and another Assyrian soldier has sliced open her stomach, her abdomen, and is pulling out a foot. It can't be anything else other than what I've described as a forced abortion. And this, all of this stuff comes together to give you two overall messages. And the first of which is one that is very specific to the Arabs. And that is that the future of the Arabs, as represented by the fetus and the forced abortion, the future of the Arabs is literally in the hands of the Assyrians. They are under the Assyrian control now. But then more broadly, there's this other really interesting message where no matter how different your culture is, even one that's ruled by a woman like Adia, these Arabs ruled by a woman, no matter how different you are, you will be treated exactly the way we've treated every other population up until now in, our, in when we defeat them. So it's the Queen of the Arabs, Adia, seems to be this kind of catalyst to really reinforce this message that no matter what, the Assyrians are superior to you, you will bow down to them, otherwise this is the result, and even the offspring of the Arabs are under the control of the what's called the Assyrian yoke. So I'm sorry for that very long. But okay, so now I need to orient myself a bit in time because so you were just talking about Ashurbanipal in the sort of mid seventh century BC. Yeah, mid, mid to late. Mid to late seventh century BC. Yeah. Okay, but then I think you maybe it was some. And Tiglath Pileser. So you talk a bit about how potentially he showed more leniency towards her and her kind of rebellion against the Neo Assyrians because she was a woman. Did I interpret that correctly? Yeah. So it's it's a bit more of a maybe the scribes wanted to ensure that he was being lenient to this woman. So in the in the royal inscriptions, again, like the royal inscriptions are incredibly well crafted. They are, I suspect, and this isn't this isn't based on any real evidence. I suspect they are probably created by committee. <laughs> I don't think there is any one specific scribe who is in charge of creating them, but they lift from a lot of different genres, like literary work and ideological works as well. So there's a lot of intention in everything that they write granted then the people who actually wrote it onto the walls because there were the scribes who actually wrote the, the drafts on clay tablets and then they would draw it onto the walls but the people who actually hammered it into the walls sometimes they make mistakes <laughs> and sometimes and sometimes you have to interpret that when you're doing translations and sometimes they add things but there are very even the very placement of signs are very intentional. So you have to read the royal inscriptions as being a very intentional piece of literature and everything is there for a purpose, including the way events are laid out. So the events that include Samsi are in summary inscriptions. These are not organized chronologically, they're based, they're organized geographically. So things that happen in a specific region during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser III. So he's about 
mid eighth century. So we're talking like a whole century before Ashurbanipal. Um, things that happened in, a, in and around Northwest Arabia, they were all listed together generally towards the end of the inscription, which meant there was a little bit of lenient, a little bit of, uh, what's the word, flexibility in terms of how things could be placed in terms of events. And I realized that the narrative that was in front of Samsi essentially describes the same thing as what happens to Samsi. There's a foreign ruler in the same region. He's defeated. Items are then sent to Assyria, but he's killed quite horrendously. And an Assyrian friendly ruler is then imposed in his stead, which is very different to what happens to Samsi. Now, Samsi fights against Assyria. She's defeated by Assyria. But instead of being killed, she's allowed to remain in place, but with an Assyrian official overseeing her to make sure that she's acting in an Assyrian friendly way. And there's an Assyrian garrison of uh, 10,000 who are stationed in her area to make sure that you know, things are all going correctly and extra policing, basically, to make sure that she's acting in an Assyrian friendly way. And that's not an unusual tactic for the Assyrians. These are both completely legitimate. But I found it interesting in terms of the juxtaposition of these two narratives, that they're approximately the same length. And they seem to imply that, yes, Samsi was defeated. But the difference between her and this other ruler is that she's a woman and therefore Tiglath Place the Third was still treating her as a woman and still not still recognizing her womanhood and still respecting her womanhood by not killing her in a grisly, horrendous fashion, but by allowing her to maintain her position. But whether that is true in reality and whether it's actually more politically expedient for her to remain in power is another matter. This is just what this what seems to be what the scribes want to put forward as opposed to political reality. This is this is the problem with royal inscriptions and with a lot of the Assyrian texts of, there were historical events that happened, but then they were, like the details were changed or manipulated in, or sometimes omitted in such a way that fit the overall message of the royal inscriptions. And how that was done was through the scribes and the scribes' internal justifications and what they needed to do and what things they lifted from history and literary works to get that message across. So there's that first interpretive layer of the Assyrians interpretation of history that you really have to sift through to get any understanding of Arabs at all. And sometimes that is just, we don't know, but we need to ask questions about what the scribes understood. <laughs> And in this case, it's going, okay, so what was the reason for Samsi actually remaining in place? Was it her gender or was it her political importance in the region or her economic importance in the region, which are, I suspect it was all three of A them. combination. Some, yeah, like you can never in history ascribe one specific aspect to them, but the scribes at the very least wanted to make sure on some level, this message that she is a woman and that played a part in her survival came across, I think. Right. So maybe continuing on this track of how the 
neo-Syrians depicted the Arabs, but transitioning a bit to the nomadic aspect, which is the theme of this podcast, although I know that's not your forte (laughs) per se, but you wrote a bit about how these sources depict the Arabs as nomadic groups. Could you describe a bit how they do that? What are the features of these depictions that give us the impression that these were kind of homogeneously nomadic people? Well, a lot of it tends to be from letters in terms of the nomadic element. The nomadic element very much comes across as as, uh, descriptions of raids by and on the Arabs. I really have to stress that because it's a bit of a bit of a trope that Arabs raided the Assyrians and the Assyrians sat still and did nothing when actually provincial governors carried out their own raids on what they describe as Arab caravans. And so we have this image of Arabs on camels either attacking uh, sedentary populations in Assyrian territory or merchants who were from the Arabian Peninsula just carrying out their day-to-day lives (laughs) <laughs> traversing Assyrian territory and being harassed by Assyrian provincial governors who didn't like that. Um, and there's also texts that discuss uh, the grazing rights that are negotiated between Arab populations and uh, provincial governors as well, which imply that there is a transient population of some sort of the Arabs that are coming into these areas that need negotiations to sustain their livestock as and when they come in and when they and when they leave. And that's kind of the basis for this idea that all Arabs are nomadic, which I still don't think so. I think that's just a case of the ones who are most evident in the sources are mm-hmm. nomadic, um, particularly when there are um, later pieces of evidence where uh, Arabs have fully settled into uh, Mesopotamia proper, like in Babylon and in Syria, and have fully settled in and are just such and such the Arab um, who does dealings. But in general, I think it's I think that these pieces have been used in a way that is again does a disservice to these populations. There's still a lot of work to really like undo this coupling of what early Assyriologists saw in not even Iraqi Bedouin culture, but in Saudi Bedouin culture, mm-hmm. and imposed that upon Arabs in the in the near Assyrian textual sources. And there's a lot of work to really undo this. And all of those Orientalist attitudes from the West of what they saw in Bedouin, and then imposing that on an ancient culture, which aren't even true for Bedouin at the time. <laughs> like I, I saw one one scholar writing about how Arabs were marauding raiders and mm-hmm. were blowings and came in and out of cities and harassed people. And then when you read the text, what they're doing is actually just, there are disputes over grazing rights, which generally in these texts, you don't really see people writing, the, we are completely happy with this situation. Generally, these letters are, we have a problem with this, with X, Y, or Z, can you please help? So all right. of these are disputes, right? <laughs> So this is entirely in keeping, but because it's a land dispute in terms of grazing rights for Arab animals, it seems to have taken on this other interpretation. And then that carries through into the 
far less informative royal inscriptions which are used to write these Neo-Assyrian historical works. Like, what is Neo-Assyrian history tends to be built on the chronology of the royal inscriptions. And that tends to inform how people read Arabs in the royal inscriptions and that they were entirely nomadic people, which isn't necessarily accurate either. But because a lot of the details are taken from, again, these palace reliefs, these pieces of artwork, where all you see are camps being raided and dromedary camels, you assume, therefore, that they were an entirely sedentary population, even though, no, sorry, they were an entirely nomadic population, even though there are explicit descriptions of sieges taking place. There's one description of a siege of Adumatu. It's very broken, but it is most definitely a siege <laughs> of a fortified city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's definitely a place for nuance between these, especially when you still have other campaigns where Assyrians are in camps. <laughs> so were Assyrians nomadic? There are some logical loops that I think need to be broken sometimes when discussing Arabs in the ancient world, especially with nomadism. And that's not to say that there weren't nomadic populations. There were clearly nomadic populations. Um, but it's to what extent? And I think that's an, that's an okay question to leave as a, as unknown mm-hmm. until we have further evidence. So maybe just a final question, since I know I've taken up plenty of your time today. Um, <laughs> no problem. So what's the future of this research? You know, you talked a bit about what you would like to have hopefully in the future in times of in terms of additional evidence. Where else do you think that this research can go, either done by you or by another scholar who might be interested in picking this thread up? Well, I think a lot of questions would be answered if we really picked apart what the ethnicity of this group we have called Arabs was. So I I phrased it that way because there is this term Aribi in ancient sources. And so, of course, translators have decided, oh, that sounds like Arab, therefore Arab, and we'll call all of them Arabs. But it could be equally valid to just call them this group of Arubu, which is also a term that's used to describe them. Um, And I think that just figuring out who on earth the Assyrians mean when they talk about Arabs is one avenue of research that would really clear things up because it would really help if we knew if they were just talking about a specific group in the Northwest Arabian Peninsula or if they were talking about a large group and who was excluded from that group and what kind of terms were used for the different groups of the Arabian Peninsula and what kind of linguistic differences there were in terms of how uh, the Assyrians refer to them and potentially even then doing research on what that on uh, the stuff from the Arabian Peninsula in terms of the linguistic evidence because there is a lot of linguistic evidence there like with the graffiti and stuff figuring out who on earth the Assyrians mean by Arab would really clear things up I think um and something but that was that was totally beyond the scope like even just the question of what do we mean by ethnicity that is an entire dissertation in and of itself just in sociological study <laughs> It's, it's a very complicated question that I hope someone can come along and really 
interrogate further. Um, and there, there have been multiple books as well, just on what does Arab mean throughout history as well. Like, it would be fantastic to have that discussed for the near Assyrian period. Um, something else that I've been looking into um, in an article under review is the flip side of this coin of gender. And I hate using that term because gender is not a binary, but we tend to think in gender studies of women and only women. And something that I've been working on has been looking at masculinities, which is the other side, because men have a gender too. And I've been spending a lot of time really getting to grips with it. And I finally was able to write something about the masculinities of these queens of the Arabs and how they are seen as kings, but their femininity is still recognized and what that means in terms of how we think about kings as well. So it's a very complicated question, but bringing in that idea of these are women acting in a masculine way to the Assyrians can also inform us about Assyrian ideas of masculinity and what it means to be a king as well, I think. And I think as well, just in future, I think when we talk about these things, just more bridging between disciplines. What I found when reading is that the Assyriologists talk about the texts and talk about the Assyrian evidence. And then the people in the Arabian archeology span community use the archeology span of which there's not much. And then they occasionally use what the Assyriologists have written, but they don't really communicate with each other. And there's not really many works that bridge the gap. And I think that's partly because there's a lack of archeological evidence for people to discuss. But I think that bridging that gap would have some really interesting research results. So I think that's another takeaway and another future avenue, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there is a future in this topic. Uh, I look forward to seeing where it goes and what you produce around this in the future. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been no problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Ellie Bennett for coming on to talk to me. I will post some links and further resources related to the content of this episode on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod. So please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic that you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.